Have you ever wondered what sets apart companies at scale right from startup from those who don't? Well, the Genius at Scale podcast is here to answer that question. I interview CEOs from scaling companies and explore the counterintuitive practices that help them grow in ways that other companies don't. We'll also explore the biggest mistakes that almost wrecked them. Hi, I'm John Hitler. I'm a nine-time company founder and CEO. Now I coach CEOs in scaling companies. We'll be joined by these visionary leaders who've defied convention, challenged the status quo, and redefined the very essence of scaling. This is Genius at Scale. Hello and welcome again to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is David Duccini of Silicon Prairie. David, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, John. I'm David Duccini, uh, founder of Silicon Prairie. We are a, uh, essentially a collection of financial technology companies centered around the universe of helping other businesses raise capital at scale. I like to joke personally, I'm kind of a financial technology nerd. I've been writing software since 1980, put a pin in that, uh, who accidentally became an investment banker. Wow. Um, tell me about the name. Is that a... Is that a nod to Silicon Valley or is that a, is that a knock or are you mocking them? Uh, it's, uh, it's not either or, John. It can be all of the above. <laughs> it, it actually is. Um, I wanted to plant a flag and, uh, and actually the name, I didn't, I didn't invent the name. The name has been around since uh, really um, the, uh, the PC revolution uh, days when, uh, when, you know, when Compaq was getting spun up, et cetera. And so the Silicon Valley um, exists really from Minnesota all the way down to Texas. In fact, I think even in North Texas, there's a Silicon Prairie uh, uh, office park. And so I want to plant a flag uh, here kind of in the Midwest. In fact, we invented a lot of technologies that people sort of take for granted, right? So the humble web browser was invented at UIUC in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, right? Minnesota is famous for supercomputing, also implanted medical devices. Uh, and so I thought it'd be nice to, to sort of plant a flag here uh, and essentially be a no-coast uh, kind, of kind of a company. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and for our listeners, uh, David's outside of in the Minneapolis area, the Twin Cities area. And That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, the reason I ask the question is I've lived in Silicon Valley since 1981, but I'm I grew up in the Midwest, so I I, I understand the the uh, the culture um, of both, and uh, and there's also tension. So that that's great. That's great. Let me start with, um, and it could be about your own firm, but you also are seeing. You're raising funds with and watching companies uh, grow and scale. How do you define or measure scale? How would you describe it or define it or measure it? Um, it's a good question. Um, so I think scaling really comes down to one being known, knowing when to pivot, right? That's, I think most companies sort of fail because they fail to pivot. It's not because they're out of money necessarily. Certainly they're out of money if they solve problems that people don't have. That's the one reason companies do fall, you know, run up and basically fail, basically. Um, so I think scale comes down to one being really outsourcing your weaknesses, playing to your strengths, all that sort of sort of the good stuff you hear is that sounds like lip service. But I, I mean it sincerely in that I do think it, being able to recognize when you need to pivot, but then also really sort of solving your today problems. Right. So I see companies that will overbuild and they're over over engineer and they'll worry about their tomorrow problems when they should be worried about making sure they can make payroll on Friday. So I think scale comes down to essentially taking calculated risks um, for the most part, but then fundamentally realizing that what got you here won't get you there. That's interesting. So does that fall primarily on the CEO or is that the C-suite to stay present with what's the challenge in front of you? 
Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, it falls on the shareholders for the most part. They elect the CEO, who may be essentially the primary shareholder. Um, but, you know, really the, the lone wolf solopreneur, they, they really don't build unicorns for the most part, right? It takes a team. We say around Silicon Prairie, it's more fun with a friend. And so it's nice to have peers to calibrate and then also making sure that you, know, you don't surround yourself in an echo chamber. Like you don't allow sycophants to infiltrate and infect essentially the culture. Um, and so frequently we'll remind people that the, the emperor has no robes, right? So it's a matter of having a sense of humility and being able to apologize when you're wrong. Hmm. That's interesting. So our listeners, their favorite um, topic to dig into is it's great to see the the Stanford or Harvard MBA business plan that you get 30% year on year growth and it all works out and we're all billionaires. I've never seen it work that way. And I bet you haven't either. No. Rather than that, we, we, we love the success stories, but they uh, our audience is really interested in for your own scaling journey or your own entrepreneurial journey. Was there a near catastrophic error, mistake, uh, decision that almost crushed you? And, and then the second part of the question that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it was a key to becoming who you ended up becoming. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, um, for us, it's, it's a combination of, we see thousands of pitches. And so we kind of get to watch what are other people are doing. And we realize that people are sort of pitching in the wrong order. And so we kind of eat our own dog food. We focus on, right, what problem do we think we're solving, right? What are people doing, doing to solve that problem, including doing nothing? What unfair competitive advantage need have you discovered? And then what's your plan to go get a meaningful percentage? And then when do you break even doing it? Like we focus on break even. But, you know, for us, I'd say the near death, let's call it a near death experience, right? The near yeah. death experience for us was... Um, we started as a crowdfunding portal in Minnesota under a state-based exemption that did not allow us to collect a success fee. So we could only charge fixed fees, which really wrongly conflates the ability of the, of the, the company raising money in terms of their, their success versus the actual cost it takes to actually run that thing. So, so the, in order for us to charge a success fee, we had to become a broker-dealer. Well, I did some digging around, and it looks like you could register as a broker-dealer at a state level. Uh, versus up to the SEC and to FINRA. And so this was news to the people in, at the Minnesota Department of Commerce here. And so they asked me to ask them for an interpretive opinion. They said, yeah, you're right. It looks like you could register. Go ahead and register. Um, and so I did. Uh, and I had read the law and I knew that 45 days uh, after registration, it would become statutorily effective, uh, which is very rare in most laws. Like, yeah, and that, I think most laws ought to be written that way automatically anyway, in addition to having all laws sunset at some point, unless you, you want to keep them around. But so that nearly kills because the Minnesota Department of Commerce, I think they got embarrassed and they went on the war path trying to malign and harangue us. They took like 800 screenshots of my social media. They sent me on a CD. I demanded an administrative hearing, basically like not like a lawsuit, but basically a hearing. Right. And so we finally got around to getting that. And uh, we roll in with just just a, a massive banker's box of evidence, whatever. And they came out with like a little tiny file. Uh, and so um in the in about in the eleventh hour, we were basically ginning up to go uh, to the administrative hearing, and um, I decided that it probably made sense for us to just go get a regular national broker dealer license. And so I decided to I offered to Department of Commerce, look, I will withdraw our broker dealer registration on one condition. That is, you give me a letter that says my registration was effective, you know, when I filed it. And they hemmed and hawed, I'm like, okay, I'll see you in court. And then they finally they finally relented. They're like, you're serious. I'm like, I'm dead serious. I'm 
you know, you guys, you know, I've got this on my, not on my record, but you just put me through eight months of hell and cost me $50,000 for nothing. At least I get a stupid letter out of this thing saying what I did was perfectly legal. So they agreed. I withdrew. I got the letter and then we went and bought a broker dealer. Uh, and that basically put us on the path back to back to success, um, mainly because we could charge success fees for our federal portal, but we couldn't charge success fees for the stuff that we were doing in Minnesota. And actually, if you if you look at just the way that crowdfunding works in Minnesota on the state based, you know, we're the only portal left standing. Right. Nobody can make any money and run a business being a crowdfunding portal in Minnesota uh, if you're not a broker dealer. And so I guess in the hindsight is if I'd known, I mean, it was a master class. Don't get me wrong. I learned a lot about regulators and the law and just being tenacious. And uh, in hindsight, if I'd known that they weren't actually dealing in good faith, I would immediately pull the trigger, demand the court hearing and or slash gone and gotten the broker dealer license at the federal level. Um, but yeah, that, that almost killed us. I mean, and even just even not just from a business standpoint, like it was stressful and you're stress eating and putting on a weight or whatever. If I go back and look at my Fitbit, because I have a Fitbit with a scale, I can see exactly the era when I was in basically doing the, the battle with the Minnesota Department of Commerce. So that's uh, that's the sort of the long answer to a, the point that almost I, almost killed us. This is why it's our the favorite question of our listeners, because it sounds like your real crime was uh, pissing them off or embarrassing them. Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah, the real the real crime is, you know, is basically being more competent than them, I think, is at the end right. of the day. Is That's an interesting piece, because how many problems in life boil down to offending somebody's ego and then ending up in a court battle, a lawsuit of, right. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I was watching these war of words, so we had, we'd hired a lawyer that used to work at the Department of Commerce. It actually cost us our friendship, because... Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was like, because I knew they were, they were stalking me on LinkedIn or whatever, so I was having none of it. Like, I was just doubling down on, like, you know, I see you, Nancy Drew. And actually, and then when we actually got the screenshots, you could actually see the internal lawyer's stupid little face down there in the corner of her LinkedIn profile. And they were, like, taking pictures of my social media at all hours of the night. And they were calling around other states trying to find something, anything to tank us. Um, and, yeah, it was a horrible abuse of uh, state resources. And in the end, it might be just purely coincidental. But the commissioner there got fired on my partner's birthday. Um, so this is what it's just there's some other stuff going on there. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, so I think the thing that we found probably out of that experience, and again, it was horrible. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But the thing that I found that is probably the most effective thing, especially when it comes to the regulators or just government people in general, is just demand equal equal enforcement. If they tell me I can't do something, like, okay, cool story, bro. But these five companies over here are doing it right now. So either they can't do it and I want them shut down or I can do it, which is it? Like, well, we can't comment. Well, I'll comment for you because if you can't do your job consistently, maybe you're not the right regulator. That's funny. That's funny. I can only imagine the scandalous cat videos they've they pulled up on your social media, tracking you 24-7. Yeah, I'll have to dig it out. But, you know, so they they actually took a – I was at a, at a conference down in uh, down in Iowa, and um, it was it's just a, it was a fun, quirky thing. They had a mashed potato bar, but it was being served in martini glasses. And so there's a picture. They actually have – they took a picture of me basically doing, like, the cheers thing from um, um, only, Great Gatsby. Only in Iowa. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, pretty, it was, pretty, it was pretty crazy. So, yeah, I, like I said – it was, that was the near, the near death experience for us. And now the takeaway for us is that we have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of nonsense. Like if we had any whiff, like we'll just come in like a ton of bricks you know, and shut the thing down. Um, yeah. And that, and it's, it's, it's worked really well for us. I mean, people think that, you know, we're, we're, we're tenacious. We are for a reason because it, it's cost us so much to get to where we are. Yeah. 
And the sad thing is that we're just asking for equal enforcement. At the end of the day, they write the rules down, Mike. And I had this conversation with, with one of the states, like, if you didn't want us to do this, you shouldn't have written a law down and made it published so I could find it. So either right. you don't know your own laws, or this is a law that you maybe should ask someone to maybe rescind or something like that. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. And, and isn't, anyway. the real, isn't the real disconnect that entrepreneurs work at uh, a rapid pace and regulators and if you will, government work at a snail's pace. I'm, I'm taking 45 days to respond to your application. It's fine. Right. They get paid for those 45 days with zero risk. And for you, it could be your your company fails in those 45 days because you needed right. the, the application approved. Yeah. Well, and I think I think the the thing that's instructive is the word regulator. If you think of it in terms of like a gas pressure relief, a regulator is there to essentially control, right? how much pressure builds up in the system. And so I get the role of it. I'm not, I'm not a hater on regulation. I think more regulation should be basically on this, you know, you have a certain amount of time and it defaults to approved. And so you don't get to just sit on your hands. That's the same thing stuff I have with like FINRA all the time. They will like demand I provide an answer in a week. Meanwhile, they'll sit on their hands for six months and not say anything. It's gotta be, you know, it's gotta be mutual. Yeah, no, that's, I, I agree. Um, so you've seen, you've seen every walk of founder. You've heard thousands, I would imagine, of pitches. Um, curious, I have a theory that there are talents. I won't say skills. There are skills, but, but I'm looking for talents, which would mean innate that scale better in startups or in entrepreneurial companies than others. For instance, the one that most people recognize if I say it is charisma. If, if sure. a founder or anybody in the organization, a small organization has charisma, you can fundraise better, you can hire better, you can recruit better, you can get your first customer better because you can you can attract and and capture attention. So you can probably it's a version of selling, but there are people that sell without charisma and they do sure. okay. If you have charisma and you're in sales, chances are you're gonna be naturally better. It's a talent and it's very difficult to to teach. I call them unteachable talents. Hmm. Curious from your experience, because you've met tons of founders sure. and seen tons of pitches. Um, is there an unteachable talent or maybe more than one that you've seen in the companies that best scale or best grow? Yeah. So I think there is, so I, I agree with you on the, on the being the magnetic personality. I think you can also be charming. I think that you may not be attractive physically, but you may be charming. Um, I think that if you can really pull off being genuine with self-effacing sort of kind of humility, if you will, I think, I think that actually can go a long way. Um, and one of the things that I've always tried to do is I use the word we, even when I mean I, like I, you almost never hear me say I do this, right? It's always we, we do this. And so it, it, what's interesting is that just naturally people fill in the blank. They'll say, well, you must have like more than you. And, and I do, obviously, but, you know, when it's just a solo entrepreneur, using inclusive language like we instead of I, I think uh, is, is probably disarming in, in, in a way. At least I found it to be disarming. Could it be indicting like we screwed up? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, again, it, it like, yes, I could, I'll say, I, I mean, the first I admit, I was going to say, a piece of being, being, you know, being willing to say, I don't know something, right? I, I see lots of super smart, bright kids. They basically get a trophy for showing up. And a lot of times they don't know how to say, I don't know. I think actually saying, I don't know is an incredibly powerful thing. If someone comes to you, even if they expect you to be the expert, don't fake it till you make it. Just simply say, I don't know. And now you have an inquiry together. You can go and potentially find, find that. And so I think there's, 
I think there's a, a, a little bit of that that can be taught, maybe. I mean, I think having a natural curiosity, I think having this inclusive kind of mindset, but also, yeah, you got to own, you got to own your mistakes. Like say, yeah, I screwed up. Nobody else here did. I screwed up. Um, but, you know, at the same time, be more inclusive when it comes to taking credit for things like we did this together. We did this or I made a mistake. Right. Or it's on me that I didn't provide better guardrails for you when you made your mistake or whatever. I mean, yeah, no, that's interesting. So what do you, um, what do you and your team um, optimize for? Do you have one thing or does each team have a separate thing that they optimize for separate or different from the overall organization? The thing that you know, most people that uh, come into my organization, um, our organization, uh, is that I have a relentless need to ship things. And so it tends to make you know, many of my staff really uncomfortable. I'm like, look, okay, first of all, this is not the last train leaving the station, right? There's going to be a train rolling in here. And so a lot of people, a lot of people think of things as high wire acts. And, and I'm like, look, just, just ship it. And so we are incredibly parsimonious with what we build. We have to. We, we have very limited resources. And so people will, they'll, we will come on and say, well, your platform doesn't look very beautiful. I'm like, well, okay, but it is a functional war machine under the hood and people are using it to raise capital. So, and so I think that the thing that we're, we're, we're sort of optimized for is, uh, is a phrase I like called satisficing. So we satisfy. Satisficing? Satisficing. 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 I thought, okay, good. I thought it was satisfaction yeah. and spicy. Uh, no, it which has kind to of sets you. Interesting. Hmm. Maybe we'll do that for uh, Cinco de Mayo. No, sat satisficing is, um, I think it's uh, Herbert is the, uh, is, the, is the guy that came up with it. But yeah, satisficing is something that we do. Um, I'd say we're sort of optimized for it. We're sort of really good at working with what we have um, and then just take, and then just being open to feedback. Like literally everybody in my organization, we sort of train them to say feedback is a gift, right? Feedback is a gift. Thank people for the feedback, but also with the caveat that not all feedback is actionable. Right. So all feedback, all feedback is a gift for sure, but not all feedback is actionable. So do you have is um, elegance or brilliance um, a kryptonite for you? If, if satisficing is the is what you optimize for is is elegance or beauty or something along that lines? Is that a kryptonite for you? Like, does that trip you up? No, actually, it's. It's, it, it's interesting. So I've been like, like I've been writing software since 1980, since the Apple II plus days when it was all uppercase. So the thing that I just, I got really good at is I, and when I write software, it is, you know, the rules are you get it working, you then get it working fast. And if you have time, you get it working elegant. Um, yeah. And so I'm really much more of a, of a function over form uh, kind of guy. I mean, I'm kind of like the king of bent and dent, scratching. I mean, all all my servers are gently used off in the secondary market. Like I don't have to have things that are new necessarily, um, because again, nobody cares. At the end of the day, nobody nobody cares what the server looks like, right? And so why you know nobody can see it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. So we we're I'd say the the thing for me that maybe my my kryptonite is that I'm sort of incredibly proud of the of what we've built. Um, and I don't take it personally when people throw shade at us in terms of, well, your system looks like front page called and wants its web browser back, right? I mean, I've tracked literally every client that's come in, a potential client, every sales that came in and they were throwing shade at the way our system looked. Um, and, and then I went on and watched them on any other platform and nobody went on to raise enough money to even break escrow. So they're not focused on solving their today problem, which is why when I go through that high five list, right? I don't care about your hockey stick. I want to know when do you break even and how fast, right? That's what I care about. 
Um, and so, yeah, people not focusing on their day problems. That's where we started using the phrase entrepreneur. Now we're using the word flounder. And so we have a little four by a little two by two matrix that basically if you have, and especially if this is the CEO, and this is a power matrix thing. So if you have a flounder, this is somebody who's in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur, right? They love to wear the puffy vest, et cetera. And they're in it for vanity. They're a negative one. They're going to drag everyone else down in your organization. Your best chance is, right? They're a zero, right? So they're either, they're for vanity, but they are a founder or they're for profit, but they're a flounder. Down in the lower right corner is the plus one. And that is the, the entrepreneur, the founder who's in it for profit. Um, and once you sort of slice through most, and I said, watching thousands of pitches, I think people are pitching in the wrong order. First of all, never lead off with the vanity slide. Nobody cares what school you went to, not even your mom, right? Nobody cares. Um, and you know, they don't care about your past and your past successes, right? What they want to know is, do you have a problem that's worth solving, right? And then they want to know, okay, well, what are people doing to solve that problem right now? This is the question of competition. And you always find competition on slide six or seven and little, little tiny letters, like we have no competition, totally inertia is a thing. And now, assuming you're carrying people through the story, now I want to know what unfair competitive advantage you have or unmet need you've discovered. Then tell me what your plan is to go get a meaningful percentage of that delicious market. And then lastly, when do you break even doing it? So we call this our high five. If you lay the story out in that order, your chances of getting someone, keeping someone engaged, right? And potentially getting funded go way up. High five to you. The last question is, we call it the thumbs up test, right? They're going to, after, assuming you've, you brought somebody through that entire pitch, right? Right? Problem we're solving, delicious, large opportunity. We're doing something cool and riches in the niches kind of thing. We have a plan to go get them and we're going to break even doing it in short period of time. They're going to go, okay, are you the person to pull it off? And I have sat at tables with investors and like, yeah, that, like, yeah, this sounds like it's amazing. Like, I don't think this guy has it in him. Like, I don't think they can pull it off. Um, yeah. And so I think there's, I think there's a, a piece of it that people really, you know, kind of overestimate what it takes to, to really do this, to do it and show up every day, like showing up as nine tenths of it for sure. But that's why I think you, doing it as a solo, a solo practitioner, you're almost never going to unicorn something because you are essentially the weakest link in the thing. Like if you, unless they get a key man insurance policy on you that makes it all get all their money back, whatever you are the bottleneck. Right. Right. Um, so you see tons of founders and tons of CEOs at all stages. Um, Curious if there is, and you may answer the question for yourself as well, is there a like an ideal risk profile for a founder or a CEO versus the third employee or the head of engineering? Focus we always have is the founders and the CEOs, but they seem to be cut from a little bit different cloth in a lot of ways. The one that fascinates me, and I'm curious your, your take, is people have fallen in love with like the Elon Musk gunslinger, you have to be an 11 on a scale of one to 10 in order to yeah. be a uh, founder and CEO. I've never found that to be true, but I'm curious, what's your take on, is there a, is there an ideal place to play on the, on a scale if there were one? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, I, I've read some stuff about Elon Musk, how, you know, he slept on the factory floor that he wasn't, you know, incredibly hardworking or maybe did have some bit of privilege that he came from. Um, I do think that you throw it in like the, um, like, uh, uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, that, that founder, um, yeah, brand name. Yeah. Branson, yeah, Branson, yeah. I, these are people that are somewhat driven. They are naturally risk takers for sure. Um, but I think these are people that also take calculated risks. Uh, and I, I would say it's probably the probably the more riskier person is the second employee that comes along or the co-founder that joins in with you. I think I'm actually more intrigued by looking for when I look for clients, I actually look for co-founder because that means at least there's somebody else who's going to stand up for you potentially, right? I mean, co-founder right. to me is like is as good or better than 
someone who just claims to be a founder necessarily. So I think I think it is I think it's a combination of having the willingness to take calculated risks. I think um, if especially if you're spending your own money, uh, you see lots and lots of people that get drunk on other people's money and they just set it all on fire, right? That doesn't take there's no skill in that at all. I think that having a little bit of a baptism by fire by having those those near death experiences and coming through them, I, I think resiliency. And, and that's why I'll say every whenever asked, like I, I have more respect for somebody who started a business, had employees, and then decided it wasn't for them, uh, versus the yo know, the armchair MBA student who's never run anything uh, because they've never sweated a payroll. Like one of my favorite stories was like when FedEx was starting out, those guys would fly to Vegas to make money to make payroll, right? Yeah. So yeah, sweating sweat, sweating a payroll, I think, is being able to really put others first, right? Uh, I mean, like even to this day, like I only get paid a dollar, a token dollar per year in, in my role here. So realizing that a startup is not going to, you're not going to get stupid rich. is the, the old joke that your overnight success usually comes in year 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always, uh, I've always subscribed to the, the theory, how to become a millionaire as a startup, startup founder, you start with 10 million. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. I've, I've heard that about golf courses. I've heard that about bowling alleys, right. bars. Yeah, First, exactly. That's right. Yeah. How to make a million dollars in a startup. You start with 10. Well, the, other, <laughs> the other litmus test, because I, I founded nine companies myself. And I said, I always ask people, how many times did you have to make payroll on the home equity line of credit tied to your personal residence? And they say, well, I would yeah. never do that. And go, then you're not, you've never been an entrepreneur. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Know any entrepreneur that didn't say, yeah, I had to go to my dad and borrow a hundred thousand, or I would have lost everybody. And of course, if you don't have money for payroll, that means you're you're two weeks away from the same problem again. Yeah, right. you're. And do you believe in yourself? Do you believe in the product? And if you do, you put it on the line of credit. And if not, yeah, you're not a you're not a. Uh, um, people say, well, I worked at Google for years. It's super entrepreneurial, and I say. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You can eat three meals, cater like gorgeous meals. They've got a, a hundred thousand square foot state of the art workout facility. You can shower there. You can do yoga. They have a chiropractic in house. You can just walk down at any time. I said that's not that's not the entrepreneurism that most people know. <laughs> it doesn't take a ton of risk to dive into. Oh, and you oh, and you got a four hundred seventy five thousand dollar annual salary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're really, you're taking a risk there. Huh? Yeah. You really went out on a limb for that one. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's funny. So, um, curious in your role, obviously you've got to be stay connected to a lot of things. Where do you get your primary information from like news and, and, and stay up to date? Or do you black out on that stuff and say, it's all toxic. I just don't do any of it. Um, it's, it's both. I mean, so I, for me, it's a matter of, I stay you know well connected on LinkedIn. I find things that are interesting. I'll repost them. I have several news feeds I'll monitor. I think our short attention span, like, I don't think the human brain's really designed to be bombarded 24 seven. And uh, I think the actual, the, 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 the unveiling of the cable news network, this 24 hour thing, or whatever, it probably did more harm uh, than, than ever. I mean, I remember an era when I was a kid, TV stations would shut down at night, like, beep you know, and they wake up in the morning, yeah. um, radio stations would shut down. Um, and so I think, you know, somewhere along the line, we got it in our heads that you need to have this sort of constant stimulation. So, um, so for me, it's a matter of, um, you know, surveying, right. Running around surveying a bunch of sites. I'll, I'll find stuff that just naturally jumps out at me and then, and then dig into it. Uh, I have a lot of friends that will send me you know, stuff that they think was interesting or they'll ask me what I think about that. So that's how I have sort of a steady stream, if you will, 
of, of, of interesting stuff. I'm, I spent a lot of time after I, I ran a business, I ran an ISP for from 94 until 2008, sold the whole thing off, hit out in corporate America for a while. Cause I didn't, I hadn't never, I haven't really worked for anybody else for the most part. I just, you know, ran work for myself. And so I ran into a guy, uh, he said that he was re retired and he and his wife got rid of their TV and the radio and they decided they just, they didn't care anymore. They didn't want to be distracted by any of that stuff. And I was super curious about that and, and having essentially, yeah, like a, like a, like a purge or a cleanse, if you will, of sort of stimuli is, uh, is appealing. So I try to be mindful and do swimming and yoga, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question is our favorite one. Uh, we ask all our guests, if we had hired a National Geographic film crew to follow you around for 90 days in the wild at your seventh or eighth grade, like junior high school, and okay. then did the documentary of, of who, who David really is, would we have taken a futures bet on you 20 years ago to be as successful as you are? Or would we have said, oh, my God, no, say, save the $2 bet. He's a terrible right? horse to bet on. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, um, so who, who are you in, who are you in junior high that would have given us a clue? So, okay, it's been, it's been, so I, I, I went to a, I grew up in a, in a small town. My idea of high school, literally the building had seven through 12th in the same, in the same building. Uh, and, and literally, and I was in Boy Scouts, whatever, super kind of outdoorsy. My hero at the time was, was the fictional character Grizzly Adams, believe it or oh, not. Sure. I wanted to live, I wanted to live outside. I wanted to live off the grid. I want to be misunderstood, you know, misanthrope as it were. Um, and then just, and, and discovering computers was just purely accidental in seventh grade. It was a study hall or end of the year. And, uh, and I went up to the kid sitting next to me. He's like, Hey, let's go and play on the computers. I'm like, well, what's that all about? He's like, Oh, let's go there. And so we were playing Oregon trail, which is a classic game designed by Mech, the Minnesota education computer consortium here in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, and the, and, and the game broke. So we were just, we were goofing around. It was like, do you want to buy whatever more bullets or whatever? And we're like, yeah, sure. You betcha. And so we basically, it was a buffer overflow. It was on an Apple II. So the game stops, librarian comes over and says, and we say, well, how, how do we, how do you get the game to work? She's like, well, I think you type list or run. And so I typed in list and suddenly all the source code goes past the screen. And that for me was like my aha moment. So if you'd followed me around prior to that day, you'd think, oh, well, he might be doing really well as an outdoorsy guy. <laughs> Little that day, it was like my brain lit up. I was like, I can, this is source code. I, this is how this, this is, this is the stuff that makes this game go. Sir. I want to learn this. And I got the one book on basic, basic from my high school library. Uh, and it's been a love affair ever since. And so if you, if you'd done, if you'd fill me up until before that day, you think, oh, well, he's going to, he's, he can be a survivalist kind of thing. But if we got you before, we'd say at best, he's, he's Ranger Smith in, in a national park right. somewhere. That's and, right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And, and then two days later, we say, wait a minute, this guy, this guy could found a tech company. That guy, this guy, this guy is like a future evil genius, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So, let me get this clear too. Were you like everybody else in seventh and eighth grade? You have either braces or big ears or a bad haircut or thought you were cool oh, when you weren't or any of that stuff? Nah, no? nah, I was pretty, I was pretty, pretty geeky. I was had, had sandy blonde hair. So it was, you know, fairly unique for a boy to have at least where I was, I mean, everyone's had dark hair. So yeah, I mean, lanky, skinny. Yes, I had braces at some point, maybe in like an eighth grade or whatever. I, then my, my next sort of love affair came and I started, uh, got involved in theater. And so I was a, in, uh, uh, I, I acted a lot in plays in, in high school. Um, and yeah. so that was, uh, that was another passion for me was, uh, was, was doing that. And that's really gave me sort of the confidence to be on stage and to, and to be comfortable with who I am. Um, and then shortly after that, I went on to become like a roller DJ, believe it or not. I actually worked at a skating rink as a roller DJ 
um, uh, spinning discs on the weekend. So, uh, which is a yeah, form of, great. which is a, a performance art, really. I mean, to oh, be, for a, sure. be a roller DJ Absolutely. is totally a performance because you could just Absolutely. do it or you could have fun with it. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, that's great. That's great. Well, David, absolutely thrilled that you uh, appeared on the on the the show and uh, and took great care of our audience for our regular audience at Genius at Scale. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. All the best. Thanks for joining me on another powerful episode of Genius at Scale. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue your journey into the world of scaling, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review and let the world know how the insights of these amazing CEOs helped you. Also, if you're hungry to discover more counterintuitive strategies to scale your business, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Little Book of Big Scale, where I've compiled wisdom and insights from CEOs who have successfully scaled their companies against all odds. Or you can go to our website, www.evokinggenius.com backslash book. Thanks again for tuning in. Go forth and scale.